please stand with me as we read the words of the, the word of the Lord together. This is from Exodus 33, verses 12 through 17. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. This is the Lord, the word of the Lord. Please see. Good evening. My name is Jason, one of the pastors here at Grace Downtown, and we are so glad that you have joined us to worship tonight. Uh, we are continuing in our series in the book of Exodus that we have been doing all summer. We're going to wrap up over the next couple of weeks. But before we jump into the text that John just read for us, I want to uh, do a couple of things here. First off, I want to thank you for um, the time and effort you have spent volunteering in our community over the last couple of weeks, whether it's needs locally or up in Cedar Rapids. Uh, So many folks have jumped in to help out, and we want to thank you for your hard work. And um, I had offers of help rolling in, um, and I couldn't even get everyone connected to needs because of all the people that wanted to help. So thank you so much for that. Um, If you would like to continue to help out up in Cedar Rapids, um, believe me, they still have a lot of work to do and really will have a lot of work to do for weeks on end. And the devastation is so broad up there. You can't just like show up with a chainsaw and say, where do you want me? So we want to have some organized ways for you to get involved and help out. So there's three things that you can do. The first one is to just check in with folks that you know that live in Cedar Rapids whether it's people in your community group or people that are friends, family, coworkers, check in with them. Don't, don't take for granted that we're two weeks out and think that they have everything under control. So check in with folks that you know. That would be step one. Uh, step two would be just let the church office know on that website that Steve referenced. You can send an email or uh, shoot a phone call to our church office. And we are collecting a list of people that have needs. And then we're collecting a list of people that want to help out. And we're connecting those up. So as people have needs, they're letting us know specifically the skill set or the supplies that they need. And then we're connecting people to to those needs. And then the third way is we're encouraging people to volunteer or donate to Samaritan's Purse. Samaritan's Purse is a great organization that responds to disasters. They now have two relief locations in Cedar Rapids, and because of that, they are needing more volunteers. So you can sign up on their website and sign up for a slot to go up and help out for part of the day, or you can donate financially to the needs there as well. Um, And lastly, before we jump into the text here, uh, we want to welcome you and thank you for being here tonight. And if you're new to town or new to us, we are particularly thankful to meet you tonight. Um, As some students were walking in, one of our volunteers did a little happy dance. She shall remain nameless, but the reason is because she was so happy to see college students back in town. Uh, We love having college students a part of our church, and we love meeting you and welcoming you into our church family, so we are so glad to have you. Uh, One way that you can get to know Grace Community Church a little bit more is 
is by coming to our membership class in a few weeks. And before you kind of freak out like, oh my goodness, I'm just visiting. I don't, I don't know if I'm ready to become a member yet. That's totally fine. We've designed our membership class to be three hours on a Saturday morning, and it gives you a chance just to hear what our church is about. We think it's important to hear what the local church is about and even consider membership in a local church, even if you're just here for a year or two years, three years, four years. So we want you to consider coming to that class and really getting a crash course in uh, what it means to belong to the local church and what we're about here at Grace. So Saturday morning, September 19th, you can join Pastor Steve that led music and myself, and we will lead you through some things that walk through what it means to be a member of the local church and a little bit about Grace. We're going to meet right over here on the patio where you checked in this evening, Saturday morning, September 19th, 9 to noon, and you can sign up for that class online. Would you pray with me and for me as we get started? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to hear from you. Father, we need to hear your voice here tonight. There are things that we know that you want to communicate to us. And God, we confess our need for you and need for your words tonight. God, thank you for speaking through your word and your spirit and your people. God, thank you that you have not left us to figure things out on our own, though often it seems that way. God, thank you for your promises of scripture. We thank you in particular tonight for the promise of your presence. And God, though I don't know each person here and I don't know each of their needs, you do. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak directly to each one here tonight. God, thank you that you know us. Thank you that you know what we need and we believe and we expect that you will speak here tonight. In Christ's name, amen. What do you think of when you hear the word home? The word home, when you hear the word home, it's kind of a complex, multifaceted word. It's not as simple as just the word house, which means a physical structure that someone lives in. But I'm talking about something a little bit more abstract, and that is a sense of home. When you think of the word home, what do you think of? Maybe you think of your home, of your family of origin. Maybe you think of a place where you feel known. Maybe you think of a place where you just know where things are physically in the home because it is the home that you know the most. Maybe it's a place where you feel relaxed and you know what to expect. Maybe there's certain foods or even smells or traditions that you associate with home. For some of us, this is something that maybe we still have as we visit our family of origin. For others of us, we grieve this because it's something we once had, but now it's been lost. And for some of us, we just long to have anything that I'm talking about right now. For some of us, that idea of home is just a dream. It's a wish. It's something that we've never experienced. I know for me, I don't think of anything geographical when I think of home because my family moved about 10 times when I was a kid and now my folks don't live in the home that I grew up in. So I I think of people instead of a geographical location. What do you think of when you hear the word home? We all long for this sense of home. Either we grieve it, we miss it, or we long to have something like it. As we jump into Exodus here today, we learn about the tabernacle. And ultimately, what we learn is that God always has a plan for his presence among his people. And when his presence is among his people, 
that's where they find their true home. So if you would turn with me to Exodus 33, there's also an outline on the link where you found the lyrics as well, where you can follow along with me. But we'll be in Exodus 33. That's where John uh, read for us tonight. Uh, A few verses I'm going to skip over, and I'm just going to reference so you can go back to them in your outline. I don't know about you all, but I'm sweating like crazy, and it's probably best that we can't give hugs due to social distancing. So I'm going to go a little bit more quickly, and you can reference back to the outline. But if you'll turn with me to Exodus 33, I want to quickly recap where we've been in the book of Exodus as we've been there all summer. In the book of Exodus, we see God miraculously and powerfully with his outstretched arm we see him deliver his people. His people, the Israelites, are enslaved by the Egyptians, and they are miraculously delivered by the hand of their God. They're brought up out of slavery. They're brought through the Red Sea. They are provided for in the desert. They are delivered and provided for by their God. And then at Mount Sinai, we see him uh, renew a covenant that he has made with them from long ago. He says, you will be my people, and these are the laws and the commandments which will hold our covenant relationship together. My laws and my commandments will hold you in safety. It will teach you about who I am. It'll make you a certain kind of people. It will make you a distinctive people. So he delivers his people. He invites them into covenant relationship with him. He gives them commandments and laws. And then last week in Exodus 32, what we saw is that God's people, while Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the law and the commandments and the instructions about what they should look like as his people, as Moses is up there, God's people lose patience. They tire of waiting on Moses and on God. And so they take what God has provided for them and they burn the gold and the the metals that the Egyptians had given them as they were being delivered. They take those metals and those golds and they make a graven image and they bow down and worship it. This gold was to be used by God's people actually towards building the tabernacle that we're going to talk about here tonight. But instead... They make an image out of it and they worship. Instead of stewarding the resources that God had provided, they bow down and worship the resources that God has provided. This is really at the heart of sin and idolatry, which is what we talked about last week. It's what Romans 1 talks about when it talks about taking that which is created and worshiping it instead of worshiping the creator of all things. So this is where we find ourselves when we open up Exodus 33. In Exodus 33, God's people say, you're telling us to move out from Mount Sinai, but we are not going to go without your presence. We're not going to go without you. Now, before we move forward, I don't want to skip over the fact that God's people have just blown it big time, big time. And yet, as God tells them to move out, they say, God, we're not going without you. This shows us that they, at this point, have seen the compassion and the grace and the mercy and the provision of their God. And even though they have just blown it big time, they're not wallowing in their own shame. They're saying, God, I want you to go. I'm not going without your presence. That's where we pick it up in Exodus 33, verse 11 where Moses intercedes on behalf of the table, uh, the people, and says, we will not go without your presence. So Exodus 33, verse 11. 
Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he, God, said, my presence will always go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, and I and your people? It is not in your going with us that we are distinct. I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses appeals to God and says exactly what the people have said. God, if you're sending us out from here, we won't go without your presence. He says, how will we be distinct from all the other peoples of the earth if your spirit, your presence, your power, your provision isn't going with us? Moses is appealing to something here. He is not opposing to his goodness. He is not opposing to the resume of the Israelites and saying that they are worthy to be God's people. He is appealing to the character of God. There's four things here that we see about the character of God. In verse 11, we see that God meets with his people. It says that he met with Moses as a man meets face to face with his friend. Intimate, relational language there. We see in verses 13 and 17 that it is his grace and compassion that he has poured out on them. If we skip ahead to Exodus 34, in verse 6, it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Here we see the character of God. And then in 34 verse 10, God renews the covenant with his people. Moses is saying, we're not going forward without you. And he appeals to God's character. You meet with us. You are gracious. You are compassionate, slow to anger, rich in mercy. And God renews his covenant with his people. Until this point, God's presence would meet with Moses at this tent of meeting that we read about in Exodus 33, where Moses would meet with the presence of God as a man meets face to face with his friend. And Moses would go in the tent and the spirit of God would fall on the tent and he would meet face to face with God. And all the Israelites would stand outside of their tent and they would wait for Moses to come out. And often he would have a word from the Lord. But as we continue on in Exodus, in Exodus 35, we learn that now God's people will take the resources that he has provided, and instead of making a graven image out of them, they will build a tabernacle. They will build a tabernacle where they will meet with God, where God's presence will fall, the sacrifices will be made. It's an opportunity for them to meet with God as they go throughout the desert. This is the reality of God's presence going with them wherever they go. This is a meeting of the heavenly with that which is earthly. 
This is the divine meeting with that which is of the earth. This is the creator meeting with his creation as his people wander in the desert. Hebrews 9, which we'll talk about here in a moment, says that this tabernacle that we're reading about here in Exodus is an earthly holiness. This tabernacle is a meeting of God with his people. This is an offer of the power, presence, and provision of God going with his people as they set up this tabernacle and he meets with them. Look with me at the end of Exodus in Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. They build this tabernacle. And then in 40, verse 34, we read, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So they build this tabernacle. The spirit of God comes and the glory of God fills the whole tabernacle showing when you build this tabernacle, when you make a sacrifice to me, I am going to come and I am going to meet with you. We read about the construction of this tabernacle in previous chapters in Exodus in Exodus 35 and 36, and then in Hebrews 9. We see what the, the whole construction of this tabernacle is. I'm going to have you kind of read that on your own time, but I'm going to paint in very brush, uh, broad brush strokes here so you can kind of get a visual of what this tabernacle was like. So we're out here, outside here, and as you look up, you see the sky, the blue sky. That's how the tabernacle was. It was a big rectangle that had been made out of fine linen curtains and these metal or wooden posts that would have silver that would attach the curtain to the post. They used these resources to make this giant rectangle and the people would stand outside and they would worship and they would pray. And then the priests and Levites, the people that God had set apart to make a sacrifice for the people, they would go inside of the rectangle into the outer courts. And in these outer courts, uh, the priests would make a sacrifice for the people. They would take an animal and the animal, uh, the priests would lay their hands on the animal and the animal would uh, represent the sins of the people. And that animal would be slaughtered to atone for the sins of the people. And then there was another curtain and then there were the inner courts where they would do more acts of worship. And then there was a holy place which another curtain surrounded. And then there was the holy of holies where the presence of God would come and God would come and meet with the high priest. So this is how the tabernacle was laid out and the purpose for it. God making a provision to meet with his people is nothing new. In fact, as you read about the details of the construction of the tabernacle, as you read about the, the men that were filled with the spirit and the skills God give, gave them to build, it says that they were filled with knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. As we read that and as we read the construction of the tabernacle, our minds should go back to Genesis because the very same language is used for how God constructed everything as he was building the earth, as he was building the Garden of Eden. In fact, in Isaiah 66, it says he created the world, God created the world with wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Just like these men are building the tabernacle with the help of the Levites. 
If we go back and we take a look at Eden, we see God dwelling on earth with his people. We are told that he is in a relationship with them. They're walking in the garden with God. So this plan for God being with his people, a plan for his presence has been there from the beginning. So we're going to take a quick look at God's plan throughout scripture to meet with his people very briefly here. And then we're going to make some application. So in Eden, we see uh, there's a tree on the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. And that tree represents the tree of life that we find in Eden. We see the same language used in the construction of the tabernacle as God used when he was building all things. We see man and woman in perfect relationship with God. We see God in the presence of man and man in the presence of God. But then very early on in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve choose to step outside of that relationship and determine for themselves what is right and good, step outside of God's provision for them, and they go their own way. They step out of that relationship and they sin. We see the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And when there is that sin that enters the world, then there is a chasm between God and man. There is something separating God and man. And in fact, all those curtains that I described in the tabernacle, those curtains were to represent the chasm between God and man. The chasm between that which was holy and that which was earthly. The chasm between that which is spiritual and that which is of the flesh. It's to be a reminder that God is holy and he is set apart. And in order for man, for mankind to have access to the presence of God, there must be an atoning sacrifice because we're not holy. We, just like Adam and Eve, go our own way. We try to be autonomous from God. We try to be our own boss in our life. So we go our own way. We step outside of God's plan and God's provision. We step outside of the relationship that he intends for us. And so there is a chasm between God and man from the very beginning. Wallace Stegner is an author, and he has a quote here about home and the fall. He says, home is a notion that only nations of the homeless fully appreciate. Home is a notion that only nations of the homeless fully appreciate and only the uprooted can comprehend. He's saying here that what we all have in common, no matter what our family of origin or what our sense of home is, that in our longing for home, we find our best definition of home. Because here's the thing, we know that we're not home. We know that we are not home. We sense this chasm between us and God. We sense this chasm between how things are and the way they ought to be. And that chasm is sin. And that sin has brought suffering. And because of that, no relationship is what it should be. No relationship is what it should be. No church is what it should be. No community group, no society, no university, no job place. Things are not the way that they should be. And we know that intuitively. It causes frustration. It causes sadness. It causes anger. It causes a longing for home that sin has taken away. 
as we journey through the Old Testament, God always gives a physical place for his presence, for his people to meet with him, whether it's the tabernacle or the tent of meeting or the Ark of the Covenant. God always makes a physical place where his people can meet with him. As we enter into the first century, into Jesus's time, we see the temple. The temple was set up so God's people could go and do some very similar things. In fact, the temple is constructed very much like the tabernacle with an outer courts, an inner courts, a holy of holies. It's set up to remind God's people that God meets with his people, but also that there must be a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And then, we find Jesus himself, God in the flesh. In John 1 verse 14, we read the word, Jesus, the one who has always been, who is always will be, Jesus, God in the flesh. He came and he dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt. That word dwelt, the Greek word means tabernacled. Jesus came and tabernacled. He pitched his tent among us. He came to live among us. He didn't just say, go in that tent to meet with me. He came and he lived among his people. This is a radical stage in God's presence being with his people. And not only that, but in John chapter 2, Jesus calls himself the temple of God. And that's because the full measure of the Spirit of God lives in Jesus because Jesus is fully man, yet fully God. And we read in John 1, 17 that Jesus came and he was full of grace and truth. He was full of everything that is God. So Jesus says, I am the temple. And then he says, I'm the temple that will be destroyed and then raised again. He is predicting his own death, but he is also saying something about who he is. In John 14, he says, after he is put to death, he will rise again, and then he will go to prepare a place for you and me, and he will send the promised Holy Spirit to come and live in his people. That's incredible. So as we follow, we see God's promise of provision and presence for his people. But now, because of something Jesus did, he is saying that his spirit can now come and live inside his people. Not just a provision for them to go and meet with him, but he will actually come and live inside of them. And that thing that Jesus did, that thing that Jesus promised is made possible because of what Christ Jesus did on the cross. Jesus, the Lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. Jesus, our sacrificial lamb that comes and dies for us, fully man, fully God, sacrificed in our place. He took on all of our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And then he rises again and he sends his spirit to live in his people. And when Jesus died, when he uttered his last breath, he said, it is finished. And then it says he went and he sat down. Hebrews says he sat down at the right hand of the father. You know, when you sit down, when your work is done. Jesus's work on our behalf is done. It was finished on the cross. And another thing happened when Jesus died. When Jesus died, the temple curtain that was separating, that chasm that we talked about earlier, that 
curtain that was separating God from man, it tore in two. It ripped apart, showing that that chasm between God and man was now dealt with on the cross, that Jesus has made a way for his spirit to come live in us. So, If you are a follower of Jesus, if his sacrifice has been appropriated to you, if his righteousness has been given to you and you have placed all of your sin on him, if you have repented of your sin and said, Jesus, I need you to die for my sin, then his spirit comes and lives inside of you. What an amazing grace that is. So now in the New Testament and the church age where we find ourselves in, God's dwelling place is in his people. He sends his promised spirit. And then one day, in Revelation 21.3, we are promised that the dwelling place of God will now be with man physically. In the new heavens and the new earth, at the end of all things, God will do away once and for all with sin and suffering and his enemies and our enemies, and he will make the whole earth his tabernacle. The whole earth renewed, a new earth set aside for worship of God and our good for all time. That's what we're promised. So, How do we live in light of this? Four things. Because God is always in our presence and we are in his, four implications from that. The first one is we can avoid sin. We can avoid sin. This is the putting off the deeds of the flesh. We can put off the deeds of the flesh because his spirit lives inside of us. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence is joy. At his right hand is pleasures. Pleasure and joy is not found in the things of this world. It's found in the presence and the provision of God. When we remember this, when we remember that his spirit is with us at all times, we can avoid sin. We can turn from sin. We can turn from the things of the flesh. We can walk in holiness. We can walk in newness of life. I don't know about you, but Whatever God calls fullness of joy, that's what I want. And whatever God calls pleasure, that's what I want to experience. We can walk in his ways because his spirit is in us. And then the flip side of that is number two, we can have the fruit of the spirit. We can have the deeds of the spirit. We can have his spirit working inside of us, changing us. We can have his spirit giving us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of his spirit, not our efforts, not our holiness, but the fruit of his spirit. I so long for the fruit of his spirit instead of my man-made fruits of the flesh. My man-made fruits of the flesh do not look like love. I find it hard to like people sometimes, let alone love them. I try so hard to like people sometimes when my goal should be loving them. Likewise, I shoot for happiness. I'm out for 
making myself happy, finding ways to be happy instead of finding joy that is outside of my experiences. Likewise, I aim for tranquility, an absence of hard circumstances instead of pursuing peace. Peace, the peace that God can give no matter our circumstances. I shoot for the things of this world and I can never attain them. I can never grasp onto them. Yet the God who created everything and his indwelling spirit wants to give me love for my fellow man, even love for my enemies. He wants to give me joy that is outside of my experiences. He wants to give me peace that has nothing to do with my circumstances. He wants to give me his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his faithfulness, his gentleness, his self-control. He wants to give us gifts that the world can never give us. The world cannot give us any of these things. It's in his presence that there is fullness of joy. And it's at his right hand that there are pleasures forevermore. Number three, we can practice biblical hospitality. I want to spend a whole sermon on this. I've got 40 minutes I could spend on it, but I'm going to spare you that now and save it for another time. I'm just going to make it very simple. We can practice biblical hospitality because God has made his home in us. And because God has made his home in us, we can provide a sense of home for others. Actually, let me rephrase that. I think we must provide a sense of home for others because they're not going to find it anywhere else. If God's spirit lives inside of you and you invite others into your home and into your life, you are inviting them into the presence of God. You are not inviting them into your perfect home or your perfect marriage or your perfectly behaved kids. You are inviting them into the presence of God. We have an opportunity to invite people into our home and show them the light and the life of who God is. Because God has made his home in us, we can provide a sense of home for others. We must provide a sense of home for others. And lastly, we can do good and we can bring light and life wherever we go. Hospitality is about inviting people into our world. This is about going out into the darkness, about going out into the world and being God's people. This is taking the presence of God into darkness, taking the presence of God into chaos. I took my four boys or three of my four boys up with me last Saturday to Cedar Rapids to help a friend and his neighbor clear out limbs. And we were able to be marginally helpful until the kids got grouchy and tired and then I got grouchy and tired. But we were able to be a little bit helpful. But that's not just the only reason why we went. We didn't just go to clear limbs. We went to bring light into the darkness, light into the chaos, light into the hurt and the suffering that we find everywhere in this world. As we go out into the world, we bring compassion because God is compassionate. We bring mercy because God is merciful. We bring grace because God is gracious. We bring justice because God is just. Because God's spirit lives inside of us, we can survive a pandemic to the glory of God. 
Because God's spirit is in us, we can survive grad school to the glory of God. We can survive, because God's spirit is in us, we can survive the first week of hybrid classes, whatever that means. We can survive Whatever is going on in our world, we can bring light into the darkness because of the spirit of the living God which lives within us. Because of God's spirit living in us, he is doing a rejuvenating, reviving, redeeming work in and through his people. And our world and our lives are in desperate need of reviving, rejuvenation, and redemption. Would you pray with me? I'd like to close the sermon by reading Psalm 23. If you've been around church at all, it's probably a familiar passage to you. But I'd like you to meditate on it as I read it, as we pray, in light of what we've talked about here tonight. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.